You're listening to R&B's On The Verge podcast series, where we look at disruption through the lens of opportunity. My name is Willem van der Post, and this is the R&B On The Verge series, where we look at disruption, but through the lens of opportunity. And I'm joined today by a good friend, Andrew Taylor, who is an entrepreneur in the energy space and also the head of legal counsel at a prominent IPP. Let's dive directly into it, Andrew. Thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Willem. We have one planet. Uh, energy consumption seems to be causing a lot of climate change, and potentially we are endangering the only place that we have to foster life as a species. Over and above that, we've got some local constraints around concepts like ESCOM and regulation. Where are we locally and, and why aren't we getting out of the rut as regards ESCOM and power provision? So, I mean, that's an interesting question. So just to touch on one thing that you mentioned there in terms of the spaceship Earth analogy that you identified. Uh, there's an incredible book by an author, David Wallace Wells, called The Uninhabitable Earth. Um, and just to kind of set the frame in terms of the urgency of this um, this requirement to move to a decarbonized energy economy, um, I think that one of the stats that Wallace Wells throws out is the fact that if we do not within the next 18 months reverse our trajectory in terms of the energy intensity and carbon uh, footprint and greenhouse gas gas emissions um, we're basically setting ourselves up for not only hitting a two degree but going well upwards well north of that to a three to four degree where life as we know it absolutely changes so I think with that as the context the uh, systems thinking and complexity thinking's approach to the problem means that ESCOM actually pales in comparison because it, so as Secunda is one of the largest point emitters of CO2 and GHG greenhouse gas emissions on the planet, uh, we're in a position where we can actually make meaningful changes. Uh, so you mentioned the constraints to that. ESCOM is obviously one of the key constraints to our ability to, to move to a decarbonized and democratized energy system. At least in our jurisdiction. Correct. Uh, but as one of the key power providers on the planet, or sorry, on the continent at least, um, ESCOM is a, is a significant regional player. So supplying energy into the Southern Africa power pool as well as to other uh, SADC countries, uh, ESCOM is a huge part of the uh, regional energy crisis that we're currently involved in. And I, I mean, the political and uh, economic and environmental implications of the current ESCOM impasse are immense and cannot be overstated. So over and above uh, the troubles that ESCOM as, a, as an enterprise faces, we're also in an era where there's a lot of vocalization around alternative energy sources. Yeah. Just before we started recording, you told me that the sun produces enough energy and that hits the planet within a five-day uh, window to account for all of the non-renewable resources that we have on the planet. Yeah, so more than, more than all proven resources on the planet um, is transmitted to us in the form of light energy, photon energy from the sun. I so, mean, it's so incredible. So macro view, why don't we just harness the sun and don't need an ESCOM and the likes of it in other jurisdictions? What's, what's in the way? Uh, so politics, politicking and economics. So... I think as we were discussing before the recording started, one of the, the big constraints is uh, our ability to adopt that systemic and complexity thinking view as opposed to what has 
been the prevailing trend is to look at this from a sort of linear uh, scarce resources environment where energy security is the priority of each country or each region or each community rather than making this a macro problem because in theory we could uh, as we were discussing put in place a massive mega solar farm in the Sahara Desert and were it not for the political constraints in terms of constructing uh, and providing means of access to the distribution and generation distribution and transmission infrastructure required for that type of project, we absolutely could solve the problem. Um, I think it's man's classic case of getting in the way of itself uh, and, and humankind's progression. That's the real constraint here. Okay, so let's zoom out here. If, if everyone is using energy on a daily basis, but not everyone is au fait with what the energy value chain looks like. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's harvest, storage, distribution. Mm -hmm. Am I missing a component? Yeah, so generation is what I would use. So, so typically still we, we look at uh, your primary energy source as being the natural resource from which energy is actually generated. So your typical uh, utility scale model is generation, uh, distribution, and then transmission. So generation refers to that means or mechanism which historically has been a steam-driven turbine, so high uses of water, high uses of heat, and characterized by a lot of inefficiencies and waste. Um, so that typically is used to create heat which drives a steam turbine which then generates the actual electricity that electricity flows via a, a distribution infrastructure um, called a transmission line which refers to the, the physical uh, wired infrastructure that's currently owned by ESCOM uh, in South Africa at least and then is stepped down to lower voltages for use within a distribution uh, infrastructure which is distributed either by a local municipality or by ESCOM itself to the end user effectively stepping it down to what the power outlets on your walls come to. Okay, so now I see Elon Musk, and he's talking about Tesla Powerwall, which essentially is a battery. Mm. So somewhere in this ecosystem, we're now at least starting the conversation around storage of generated power. Yeah, so Musk's obviously one of the pioneers in this and many other fields. I mean, he's um, introduced the one of the most incredible exponential curves in terms of energy and uh, energy use on the planet not least of all with SpaceX but uh, the Powerwall is an at-home unit which um, effectively uses lithium-ion batteries to store energy generated typically by photovoltaic cells so typical silicon based photovoltaics which are then um, which is then stored for domestic use. What I'm more excited about, yeah, it's a house battery, exactly. It's like a really big watch battery, effectively. What I'm really excited about is Tesla's latest innovation called the Megawall. So they've just introduced sufficient um, lithium ion battery capacity to store three megawatt hours of, of energy. You've got to translate that for people that don't understand how you measure electricity. Yeah, so your average US household uses 29 kilowatt hours per day. Um, and they, the U.S. household, for instance, is 65% more energy intense than a European household, and we're fractions of a European household, in gen generally speaking, within developing economies. So we need a lot less than 29. Yeah, we need a lot less than 29 and we need a lot less than 3 megawatt hours of storage. But what's really interesting for me is that that uh, overcomes one of the key constraints and criticisms of renewable energy, which is its non-dispatchability. So when the sun doesn't shine, photovoltaic cells are useless. When the wind doesn't blow, the wind turbines sit still and aren't generating electricity. But 
but when what becomes really interesting is when we start introducing storage as a means of uh, allowing for a the harmonization of the actual electrical frequency that's generated so our grids operate within a defined frequency and renewables need to feed into that within those bands of frequency that's regulated by the accurate legacy infrastructure compatibility is what you're saying correct correct right. so uh, that solves that problem and also when even when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing we're still able to feed electricity into the grid and that overcomes a major criticism from all of the renewable energy naysayers um, in both in the local and in the international market okay so the old value chain generation uh, dispatching or distribution and now we're on those fringes adding perhaps harvesting from the sun or from the wind as well as storage so so value chain innovation and you as an entrepreneur must see some mm. interesting stuff happening in those uh, edges of the network things like materials that are uh, allowing for sun absorption or better storage uh, alternatives such as nuclear. Talk to us a little bit about what the exciting things are that you see in the value chain. Yeah, so that's the opportunity, right? Absolutely. Uh, so I think the bleeding edge of renewable energy and energy in general lies within mankind's ability to innovate. And I think that whilst disruption is often used as a, uh, often has negative con connotations, particularly uh, for incumbents in the energy sector, I think that by increasing access to reliable and affordable sources of energy, we're actually democratizing the energy ecosystem and in doing so providing untold opportunities for additional innovation which is what makes it exponential. So there's two technologies that I'm particularly passionate and excited about. Uh, the one in, uh, you mentioned earlier is in relation to uh, storage and vanadium redox flow batteries have been around for uh, quite a while. So one of the key constraints to the power walls proliferation and, and penetration into the market is the constraints on supply of lithium. So lithium typically is harvested literally by distillation across a flat pan where you need to evaporate all of the water and, and scoop off the, the lithium before it can be further processed into the actual batteries. Uh, vanadium is significantly more um, ubiquitous as a substance on the planet. And what these vanadium redox flow batteries do is create an iron differential through a membrane using um, electrolytic solutions, which effectively offer unlimited depth of discharge and don't have the associated explosion or heat risks that come with typical uh, lithium batteries which is why as i mentioned earlier that uh, mega wall is so exciting because it seems like musk and his uh, and his acolytes have been able to overcome that heat and explosion risk associated with large-scale lithium batteries so are we then talking about batteries that last a lot longer are safer and ultimately when we achieve scale cheaper yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, cost, levelized cost of energy uh, is now being transformed into levelized cost of storage. So, as when you say, pause you there, when you say levelized cost, tell me what that means? Basically, it's a complex way of saying we've internalized as many of the costs as we can, and this is what the projected cost of this energy source is going right, to be. Got you. Similar for storage, so you look at the entire um, life value chain and the entire um, carbon footprint of the production, transport, uh, installation, all of the associated externalities that typically are not accounted for in um, uh, 
face value analysis of the cost of a good. Okay, so you're making it truly comparable, in other words. Correct, right. exactly. Right. Um, so the, the big movement then uh, from a storage perspective is towards these uh, unlimited depth of discharge batteries. Um, and w another technology that's quite exciting there is the use of nuclear batteries. So nuclear batteries have been around since the Cold War era, but what has and those were typically plutonium, enriched plutonium-based batteries. But what's particularly exciting is a group of scientists at the National Research Energy Laboratory in the United States have managed to do is utilize nickel-63, which is a far more ubiquitous and cost-effective material to use, and actually rely on the, the thermal decay of the nuclear substance. So whilst not relying on the heat, we now use uh, the decay, the nuclear decay of the substance to create an uh, electron imbalance, which allows it to be used as a battery, which has, again, unlimited depth of discharge and a lifespan, useful lifespan of over 100 years. When you say nuclear, I think that's all great benefits, but it sounds mm. dangerous. I think Chernobyl. Yeah, so you think Chernobyl and uh, most of South Africa will, will will think of the Russian nuclear deal. So it, admittedly, it is a highly politicized topic. But I think if we are to meaningfully address the uh, industrialization and economic growth imperatives that our government and governments across the world have set for their populace, we need to find a way to develop uh, energy sources that are not uh, or that minimize at least the externalities. So solar... CSP, concentrated sort of photovoltaic technology, nuclear, coal, they all have externalities. The choice of evils is really what this boils down to. And for me, this represents, uh, nuclear in particular, represents a means of generating um, emissions-free energy that can satisfy mankind's hunger for development. Uh, so I think that's pretty interesting. Um, there's one other technology that I did actually just want to mention, which is called perovskite, which is a... Say again, perovskite. Perovskite with a P, yeah. Um, which is actually a light-absorbing crystal, which they've uh, used in experimental phases at this point at least, but has a theoretical efficiency of 66%, which to put that into perspective in relation to photovoltaics, typical commercially available photovoltaics are only in the region of 16 to 18%. So just pause there for one second, I wanna make this really real. Mm -hmm. The commercially available photovoltaics, I yeah. think I'm saying it right, is a PV solar panel. Yeah, so, so PV just stands for photovoltaic. Right. So literally, taking photo energy photon energy and converting it into volts at some point okay so the solar panels you were saying that uh, that is commercially available today mm -hmm. has an efficiency rate of between 16 and 18 percent so effectively what that means is of the available energy hitting the semiconductor the actual pv cell only 16 to 18 percent of it is being converted into electricity hugely inefficient yeah so it is it is inefficient uh but not overly inefficient if you compare it to historical legacy based um, I mean I'd love to have the stats for you on, on what the coal efficiency is yes, but I know you've sure. got a highly educated listenership so I'm not going to throw out uh, uh, <laughs> uh, stats that I can't back up but I, I stand to be corrected but it's in the region of 30 to 34% uh, coal to uh, electricity conversion um, which, which is one of the reasons why it's because of the abundant sources of coal in South Africa, we've become reliant on this fossil fuel source. The availability of the resource in Southern Africa, and particularly in South Africa, in what's called Solar Corridor, means that 
even at a 16 to 18%, it's still competitive. With the declining costs of the actual technology, it becomes exponentially more competitive when compared to fossil fuels. And now over and above that, you've got these crystals that are doing 66%. Correct, exactly. So if we can commercialize those types of technologies and those types of materials, we get into a really exciting world where the economics of renewable energy generation make a lot more fundamental financial and economic and environmental and social sense when compared to traditional fossil fuel generation. It's an incredibly exciting time to be involved in energy, particularly in South Africa. We live in such a dynamic environment that opportunities are abundant if you're just prepared to, to deal with all of the other stuff that comes along with it. Seems to me like we're at the crossroads of opportunity and it's now a fundamental requirement to experience positive leadership in this space. Absolutely. Andrew, I hope that more people with your insight and your energy around the, ironically, energy sector come to the fore so that we can, as a nation, harness the set of opportunities that exist in front of us. Fascinating talking to you. Thanks again for joining me. Absolutely. Uh, wonderful to have you. Thanks I'm very sure much we'll for having, having me, Willem. Cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Eh? Cheers. Thank you. You've been listening to R&B's On The Verge podcast series. For more solutionist thinking, visit the R&B website.